Well, our passage this afternoon is actually a very dark passage. And it's not until the final verse of our passage that we find any hint of hope. And for some of you, it may seem like precious little hope in a sea of wickedness. C.S. Lewis wrote about an experience that he had where he stepped into a dark tool shed. That's right, I said tool shed. (laughs) And he actually wrote an essay about it. It's called Meditation on a Tool Shed. And it reads like this. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and, above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, some 90 million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Now, Lewis uses this illustration to talk about something that's a little bit different than what our passage is about today, but I wondered if it might help to make sure that after we wade through these dark and challenging verses that you would be encouraged to, at the end, make sure that you don't just look at the hope near the end, but you would look along it and beyond it to the greater hope that it points to. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 and keep your finger there. We're going to be turning to other parts of the Bible this morning at various times, so I want you to have your Bible in front of you. This morning, we're stepping back into our exposition of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible. And as I tell us to go to different places in the Bible... I'm going to try and help you, if you're not familiar with the Bible, to get to those places. And really, the first order of business to help you, the first thing that would help you the most would be the table of contents in a Bible. Don't be ashamed to use the table of contents. The more you use it, the more you'll get familiar with where the books are. There's no shame in using it. And you might be helped as well to know, if you're not familiar with a Bible, that the chapter numbers are the big numbers on the page and the verse numbers are the little numbers. So I usually tell a chapter and then a verse. Now, for those of you who have been coming, you've heard me give five sermons on the first five chapters of Genesis. In chapter one of Genesis, it begins with God creating everything out of nothing. The entire universe, the earth and everything in it, And then in chapter 2, towards the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, God creates man and woman. In his image, he creates them. And he creates them to represent his rule over everything. In fact, they are to rule over the earth and over everything that's in the earth and to keep the garden that God had planted for them, a beautiful garden for them to live in and to expand over time. God instituted marriage between the man and the woman, The husband and the wife are mutually dependent on one another, but with different roles in marriage. Everything was perfect, entirely loving, and pure in God's world in the beginning. But it didn't stay that way. In chapter 3, the serpent deceived the woman. She disobeyed God. He disobeyed God. And what God had promised came to pass. Death was the sentence. Though in God's mercy it didn't take place immediately, they were ejected from the beautiful garden that God had created for them. But there was hope. God had showed them kindness in that he clothed them with animal skins to cover over their shame and nakedness. 
And there was this promise from God that a descendant of the woman would one day defeat the descendant of the serpent. And then we learned in chapter 4 that that promise wouldn't be fulfilled with their first child, who was named Cain, or with their second child, who was named Abel. In fact, Cain killed Abel in a fit of rage and anger. It was the first murder. The descendants of Cain continued to descend deeper and deeper and deeper into pride and arrogance, violence, and corrupt marriage practices. But in chapter 5, God gave Adam and Eve another son named Seth. And at least Seth and some of his descendants trusted the promise of the Lord. Enoch, in fact, was in that line of descendants, and he walked with God, it says in chapter 5. And when the man descended from Seth, named Noah, was born, his father had hoped that he would bring them rest and relief from the painful work brought about by sin. And so we come to Genesis 6, verses 1 to 8. Follow along with me as I read. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us soft hearts to receive your word for what it is, truth and life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if I had to reduce the message of this passage to one sentence, it would be this. Our sin will be judged, but God offers grace. Our sin will be judged, but God offers grace. And there's going to be three points to the outline of the passage this morning. It goes like this. Our sin is great, verses 1 through 6. Our sin is great. That's in verses 1 through 6. Secondly, God will judge our sin. That's verse 7. And last, God offers grace to sinners. That's verse 8. Our sin is great. God will judge our sin. And God offers grace to sinners. Now, it's generally agreed by Bible scholars that the verses 1 through 4 in our text this morning are perhaps the most difficult to understand in all of Genesis and maybe in all of the first five books of the Bible. Wise and godly people disagree about what some of these verses mean. And so we're entering into deep waters to try and understand these verses, but we must trust that if we ask God, he will give us enough understanding to be obedient to him, to what he says to us through this passage. Now, Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8 really is another way of describing and saying what has happened In Genesis chapters 4 and 5, it's about how man multiplied on the earth and how sin increased. And the point that we learn in the first six verses is that our sin is great. Our sin is great. We're taking up the first six verses here on this first point, so it's going to be a bit longer than points 2 and 3. In verse 1, Of our passage, we learn that man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Now, we've seen daughters 
were mentioned for each man who was listed in the genealogy back in chapter 5. It keeps saying over and over through that genealogy, he had other sons and daughters. He had other sons and daughters. He had other sons and daughters. And so we know there's lots of daughters on the earth right now. And then in verse 2, it tells us that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, whoever the sons of God were, and we're going to take that up soon, they were choosing wives based on appearance, on looks. And we know that this isn't good. We know from the passage and the context that this is wickedness. It's implied strongly by the language that says, seeing that the daughters of man were attractive. And then it says they took any that they chose. And that, those words, that phrasing, it echoes the language that's back in Genesis chapter 3 when the woman looked at the forbidden fruit and she saw that it was a delight to the eyes and so she took of it and ate. Do you hear the same kinds of words? Back from chapter 3. And so that's a clue. That's a clue for us that what's going on here is wicked. It's not good. I wonder if you're single. What, your, what criteria do you have for choosing a potential spouse? Of course, there should be some attraction. But what are you attracted to? To what degree are you considering the character of a person? Sometimes an attraction to physical characteristics in a member of the opposite sex is so great, so blinding, that a person will rationalize and not carefully think about the degree of godliness or spiritual growth in a potential spouse. And that's oftentimes what's happening when a Christian begins to compromise on God's commands against marrying with a non-believer, and instead they go and pursue a relationship with someone who is not a believer, who is a non-Christian. Friends, don't be deceived by your attractions to the wrong characteristics in other people. Now listen, if you, if you have a type in your mind that you think is best suited for you to be a spouse to you, make sure that that type has something to do with the love for God or maybe a desire and effort to grow in Christ or a commitment to the local church, those kinds of things. Any other type that you have in your minds is very likely, a wor it's worldly in nature. Height, hair color, nationality, style, those are things that the world values. Christians value godliness in a potential spouse. Think about Hollywood and Bollywood, for instance. They are generally filled with physically attractive people, but their track record for remaining married and faithful in their marriages isn't good. Physical beauty fades in this life. Godly character will last into eternity. Now look with me again in the passage at verse 3. God sees that the sinful behavior that's happening in verse 2, and he responds to it by doing what? Limiting man's lifespan. He says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The people in Seth's line, and presumably also the people in Cain's line, spoken of in chapters 4 and 5, were living to extraordinarily old ages close to 900 years or more in some occasions. And now God declares that man will live to an age of around 120. And he's obviously doing this because he wants to limit the amount of wickedness and evil on the earth. And we know that, we know that this number of 120 is an average because, well, everybody doesn't live to exactly 120 years, do they? Furthermore, we learn that the limit on man's lifespan will begin to take effect gradually. And so if you will turn just a few pages over to Genesis chapter 11. It's just a few pages over. Genesis chapter 11. 
And beginning with verse 10, we see that these are the generations of Shem. Shem is one of Noah's sons. He's already been named in the very last verse of chapter 5. And then if you skim your finger just down that page and you see all those ages listed there, you'll see that their lives began to be shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And in verse 32, which is the very last verse in chapter 11, we see that it says, The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And now if we read on into the book of Genesis, we would learn that Abraham died at 175 years, Jacob died at 147 years, Joseph died at 110 years, and eventually when we get into the book of Moses and on to the end of the Pentateuch, we see that Moses dies at 120 years. And so God's declaration of shorter lifespans begins to take effect after the flood, and it takes place gradually over time. It seems that God actually might have altered man's genetics such that it took place as they had children and they had children and they had children. God could have made it happen instantaneously, or he could have made it happen gradually. God can make his declarations happen any way he so chooses. Now, one thing we're reminded of in this verse 3 is that the only reason any man or woman is alive is because God breathed first into the nostrils of Adam and Eve when the author of Genesis, what the author of Genesis calls the breath of life. The very fact that you breathed through the night and stayed alive is a gift from God. Every breath that you draw in is an echo of that first breath that he breathed into Adam and Eve's nostrils. It's because God, because of God's kindness to you and I. All the functions of your body that are automatic and carry on without you knowing how they work or when they work, they're evidence of God's love. God is the source of life whether you believe in him or not. He's sustaining you. Some people like to fancy themselves as self-made men or self-made women. There's no such thing. God gives life and he can take it away. Let every one of your breaths be a reminder of your utter dependence on the God who made you. And give him the praise that's due to him. Make those breaths count. Live a life that honors and glorifies your maker. Well, now it's time to consider who these sons of God are that are mentioned in verse 2 and verse 4. If we read into verse 4, we learn a little bit more about them. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Don't worry, we'll come to them later. (laughs) And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Renown means fame. These children of what seemed to be children of the sons of God and the daughters of men were famous and they were well known. The fact that they were called mighty men perhaps points to them being warriors, in all likelihood full of violence and thirsty for power. Now, it might be a little bit confusing to some of you to read that term, Son of God, and have it not be a reference to Jesus Christ. Because if you're a Christian, you're you're most familiar with thinking of Jesus Christ. If we play that game where I mention a phrase or a word and you reply with the first thing that comes to your mind, and I say Son of God, you say Jesus Christ, probably. But the Bible refers to a range of kinds of people as sons of God, actually. In Luke 3, 38, in the genealogy of Jesus, Adam, the first man, is referred to as the Son of God. In Exodus, the whole nation of Israel is referred to as the Son of God. Or individually, Israelites could be called the sons of God. In Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, Moses tells the Israelites, you are the sons of the Lord your God. Christians are even referred to in the Bible as sons of God. 
In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says that the peacemakers will be called sons of God. Or in Galatians 3, 16, excuse me, 26, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. But there's one more category of beings that are referred to as sons of God in the Bible, and that is angels. Job, chapter 1, verse 6, says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now this is describing the heavenly host of angels approaching the throne of God in heaven and Satan also coming along with them to talk to God. Now when we think about who these sons of God in this passage might be, there are three main theories about who they could be, three main theories. The first one says that they are kings or aristocratic rulers. They were power-hungry leaders who then took daughters of the common people for themselves. I find this to be the least likely explanation, although there's some reputable people who hold to this opinion. A second opinion that's even more persuasive to me is that the sons of God are men from the line of Seth, the godly line of descendants listed in chapter 5. And then the daughters of men would then be thought to be the daughters from the ungodly line of Cain that's described in chapter 4. And in this view, what's essentially being described then in our passage is believers marrying non-believers. Something that's wrong. That was something that the Israelites who read Moses' account here would clearly understand is wrong as well. God commanded them not to intermarry with the unbelieving nations around them. Now, just to be clear, that command of God for the Israelites to not intermarry with the nations around them didn't have anything to do with forbidding, forbidding intermarriage among different cultures or people who had, let's say, different skin colors. Instead, it had everything to do with marrying into marrying people who didn't worship Yahweh. Now, some of the people who hold to this view would be Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and someone more contemporary would be R.C. Sproul. That's quite a lineup. Now, the third and oldest view of who the sons of God are in this passage is that they are fallen angels who somehow took on human forms, perhaps even possessing men, and sought to corrupt the human race by corrupting marriage and procreation. And this view is supported by the reference to angels, of course, as sons of God in Job chapter 1-6, which is also, it's also mentioned in chapters and chapter 2, verse 1 of Job. And it's also supported as well by passages in the New Testament. Turn with me to the book of Jude in the New Testament. And I'll tell you a quick way to get to Jude. Go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. Flip back to the very first page of Revelation and turn one more page. And you'll be in the book of Jude. The next to the last book in the Bible. The 65th book of the Bible. Jude, and we're looking at verses 5 through 7. He says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So in these verses, Jude is giving us examples of people and angels who perverted the grace of God and led people astray, and they do so particularly through sexual immorality. That happened to the Israelites in the desert after God rescued them. I think that's what's referenced in, verses, in verse 5. 
on a number of occasions, they began to commit widespread sexual sins. The Israelites did. Even at the base of the mountain of God, while Moses was up on the top receiving the law of God. And when Moses came down, God commanded him to kill 3,000 of them. Now skip to verse 7 in that passage in Jude, where Jude refers to the widespread sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. That's in the book of Genesis later on. Those cities were destroyed. And then if you'll jump back up to verse 6, Jude seems to be commenting on angels who left their position of authority and disobeyed God. Because it's, and because it's sandwiched between verses 4 and 5 and 7, all having to do with sexual immorality, it's reasonable to assume that this is a reference to angels committing terrible sins of a sexual nature. Now, many early Jewish scholars also understood Genesis 6, 1 through 4 to be about fallen angels taking human women as objects of their lust. There's passages in 2 Peter chapter 2 that also lends some credibility to this view. And now if that seems incredible to you that fallen angels could take on human bodies, we should remember that throughout the Gospels, demons crave control over humans and their bodies. We saw it when we studied through the first half of the book of Mark, didn't we? And then we know as well that angels came to visit Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 right before they go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and they ate with Abraham. And then when they do go down to the city of Sodom, they look enough like humans to be the object of lustful advances of the men of the city. And if you're still having trouble believing this, I would finally suggest to you that we Christians are the ones who believe that Jesus, the Son of God, could take on a human body, a body which he still has, by the way, a glorified body. Then why not angels given all the other evidence in Scripture? People that hold to this fallen angel view are the earliest Jewish scholars and current-day scholars like Tom Schreiner and John MacArthur, among others. I tend to agree with this third view about fallen angels, though it's a tough decision. And one of the scholars that I read this week concludes his discussion of these verses by saying, the mysterious identity of the sons of God continues to humble the expositor. Well, I felt humbled this week as I studied it. And regardless of which view you take, what you have here is a great corruption of humanity. There's no doubt about it. But of course, there's still the mysterious Nephilim of verse 4. Let me speak to that just briefly. The Nephilim are only mentioned here, and then they're mentioned in chapter 13 of the book of Numbers when the Israelites were spying out the land and they were afraid of the people. They said they're like Nephilim, they're like giants. Both here and in Numbers, the word Nephilim literally means giants, but it's actually related to a Hebrew word that means to fall. It could mean to fall upon in battle or to conquer. It could also mean fallen ones. I think it at least means that these were battle-hardened and violent men who dominated others and became famous for it. Perhaps they were very large, physically dominant, maybe like Goliath that David fought against. They could be the violent and sensual people who were the offspring of the corrupted marriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men, perhaps. No matter what the exact identity of the sons of God and the Nephilim, we should note that one of the chief areas where Satan will attack us is in our marriages or simply in the relationships between men and women. If Satan can spoil or pollute marriage, then he will have a foothold to destroy a whole people, whole churches. Even if this is fallen angels corrupting the earth, the families, the fathers, the mothers, the brothers, the daughters, they're all participants in the corruption. 
Now, we might not have fallen angels coming to marry our daughters or the single females around us, but we're quite capable of destroying our marriages ourselves. Brothers and sisters, guard your marriage. Guard your marriage. Nurture and pray for your marriage. Don't let it go unattended. Church, graciously ask one another how one another's marriages are going. Husbands and wives, I want to encourage you to be reading the Bible together. If you're not doing that, start small. Start with five or ten minutes a day. Five or ten minutes a week. Just start. Pray together. Make time to have undistracted communication with one another. And for those of you who are single, choose well. Choose well when you marry. And one of the challenges of being a part of a church in Dubai is that we all have significant relationships outside of the country. Let me suggest that if you have in mind to begin a courtship or dating relationship with someone here or especially outside the country, let an elder or another wise person in the church know. Let us pray for you. Invite others in the church to keep you accountable in terms of purity and how fast the relationship is moving along. Let us ask you good questions to assess yourself and the other person. We want to do that to protect one another. Now, these marriages in the passage were driven by lust and appearance, and they resulted in violence and men who sought fame. They were looking to make a name for themselves. But how did God view all of this? Well, there's no doubt. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Wickedness and evil are abounding here. It's everywhere and it's in everyone. And the words that the author uses to describe the evil are amazing here. He, he just piles it on. The wickedness was great. It's every intention. It was only evil continually. I don't think there's another sentence in the Bible that so thoroughly describes the depth and the breadth of sin in a people. In the past weeks, I've spoken to you about the concept of original sin, the idea that each person is born as a descendant of Adam and Eve, that they have a sinful nature, a bent toward sin from birth. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible also teaches that we are totally depraved. That's the doctrine that we find in Scripture called total depravity. And this is a doctrine that follows along from original sin. Depraved, by the way, means sinful, totally sinful. Now, some people misunderstand this phrase, totally depraved, to mean that we are as bad as we could be. <laughs> now, that's not what it means because I know many of you and you're not as bad as you could be. Total here means how widespread our sin is. It's describing the extent of our sinfulness. In other words, total depravity says that there is no part of us that's untouched by sin, tainted by sin in some way. Think of it this way. If I started a bonfire in my living room, the smoke would begin to fill the whole house. And it would be worst in the living room, of course, where the fire was, but you would eventually smell smoke in every single corner of my house. Some places it would be stronger than other places. But every place, even closets and drawers, would begin to have a faint smell of smoke on them. That's what total depravity is like. It taints every part of us. Verse 5 is illustrating the total depravity of man in the extreme. Martin Luther said about total depravity and original sin, inherited sin in a man is like his beard. Though shaved off today, so the man is very smooth, it grows back by tomorrow morning. 
Charles Spurgeon said, a little bit more soberly, as the salt flavors every drop in the ocean, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so abundantly there that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. But you may say to me, Brian, what about the good things that my non-Christian colleagues or friends do? Doesn't God recognize those good deeds as good? What about your neighbor who speaks a kind word to your children? Or what about a family member who would do anything for you but isn't a Christian? What about your friend who would loan money to someone who desperately needs it? Let me read three very, very important verses to you. These are from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith means believe, belief in God and trust in his promises. Romans chapter 8, verse 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then on in 9, it says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now listen, when we, when we encounter and enjoy even the relationships that we have with non-Christian family members, even colleagues or neighbors, we thank God for those acts of kindness or good deeds in those non-Christian friends, family, and neighbors. But good deeds done apart from faith in Jesus Christ and the promises of God do not please God. They do not please God. This is very clearly what the Bible teaches. Think of it this way. If someone is refusing to worship God who made them and refusing to worship and trust in the Son of God who loves them, they are in a state of rebellion no matter how nice they seem. And so no good deed that they do is of any merit before God while they are continuously rejecting God. You can't reject God and get credit with God. They can't deny God and His Son at the same time earn favor with God. This is a hard truth. But it is true. Now, don't think that the world in Genesis chapter 6 was much different than the world today. It's not. And I tell you all these things that are truths from the Bible so that you would be zealous in sharing your faith. Do not be lulled into thinking that your kind neighbor, who is not a Christian, will somehow earn merit or favor with God. They will not. Take advantage of that friendship to share the best news that you have to give. Let's be praying for our family members, our neighbors, even random people that we meet that are kind to us. We want them to know the God who made them. Listen, if we lived during this time, we would number among those whose every intention of the thoughts of our hearts was only evil continually. We have sinned greatly against the Lord. If you're not a Christian and you're here this afternoon, perhaps these are hard words to hear that I've been teaching now, maybe difficult to take in, difficult to swallow. I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards. But you should know that every member of Covenant Hope Church, every Christian in this room was in this situation described in Genesis chapter 6. We all sinned greatly before we met Jesus. We tell people that we were caught up in sin. That's our testimony. Maybe we weren't murderers. Maybe we weren't thieves. Maybe we weren't human traffickers. Maybe some of us were. One thing we say, though, without hesitation, is that we were sinners, and we loved our sin. 
being a Christian means admitting that you once were a person who trusted in your own works to earn God's favor and you loved your sin. But now you trust only in the works and righteousness of Christ. It says in verse 6 that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Does that mean that the Lord had made a mistake? Is he saying, wow, what a mess I've made by creating man. <sighs> Wish I hadn't done that. Well, there's an important passage that will help us. It's in 1 Samuel 15. I want you to turn there now. 1 Samuel 15. That's in the Old Testament too. It's about a quarter of the way through the Bible, if you have a whole Bible with you. 1 Samuel 15. And we're looking at verses 10 and 11. 1 Samuel 15, 10 and 11. God had made Saul king of Israel at the Israelites' request, but Saul had become disobedient to the Lord's commands. He was going astray, and so Samuel, who was a judge and prophet of Israel, has come to approach and confront Saul. And this is the word in verse 10 and 11 that God gives to Samuel. It says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. It's the same idea that's here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, the idea of regret. But now skip ahead in chapter 15 and look with me at verses 28 and 29. 28 and 29. It says, and Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel, another name for God, will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. God does not have regret like we have regret. When the scriptures tell us that he has regret, it's essentially telling us about the feelings of God and not that God has made some kind of mistake and is just now realizing it. God has emotions. God is not a robot. But his emotions are perfect and they're always appropriate. He's not like us. Now turn with me back to Genesis chapter 6. Back to Genesis chapter 6. In case that you begin to doubt that God has good and right and appropriate emotions, look with me at the last part of verse 6 in chapter 6. The last part. What does it say? God was grieved to his heart. God was grieved. Sin grieves God. God says to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And later on in the chapter he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. If we're to become godly, like God, we must pray for a heart that grieves over our own sin and over the sin around us. We must grieve it. Do you grieve over your sin? If you find yourself not grieving over your sin or the sins of others, ask the Lord to make your heart like His. To reshape your heart to be like Him. Ask him to give you a great sensitivity to sin combined with humility and love. Ask him every morning, Lord, help me to hate sin, to grieve sin, and to walk in your ways today. Help me to have such great affections for you and for your word and your ways that I run from sin and I live in the joy of pleasing you. Ask the Lord for that. He loves to answer that prayer. Now, verses 1 through 6 have described a horrible, horrible descent into moral chaos. 
And that finally brings us to the second point, which is God will judge our sin. God will judge our sin. That's in verse 7. Sin has reached such a depth and such a breadth in mankind that the Lord has decided to judge man. He says, I will blot out man. The Lord is going to destroy all mankind, and he is right and just in doing it. God is holy, and when he encounters sin and rebellion, it must be judged. God, who is our creator, is also therefore our judge. Psalm 9 Verses 7 to 8 says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. You know, internally, we all know this. We, made in his image, we have a hunger for justice, don't we, in life. When we read of injustice in the news or we have injustices committed against us or family members or people that we love, we yearn and long for justice. We think to ourselves, it's just not right. But so often we exclude ourselves from our evaluation of who has committed injustice against anyone else. And we think even less about how we've sinned against the Lord. You should notice, too, here in this passage that our sin doesn't affect just us. We'd like to think that our sin is contained, it's controlled, it's isolated to just us. But our sin affects the world and even the cosmos. It was because of Adam's sin that the ground was cursed. And because of man's great sin here in Genesis chapter 6, even the animals will be destroyed. It says animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they'll all be wiped off the face of the planet. Man was supposed to have dominion and rule over the earth and over the animals to tend to them, to keep them, but his sin is now bringing destruction to them. Think of it like this. When we sin, it's like walking into a room in your home with a big bucket of paint and you throw it up in the air and you watch it crash to the floor and paint splatters everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. It's under cabinets, it's on the wall, it's dripping into drawers, perhaps even on the ceiling. That's what our sin is like. You can't control it. Don't fool yourself. You can't contain your sin. Your sin affects those around you and it increases your guilt then even. And that's another reason to fight sin and to seek holiness because you love those around you and you know that your sin will hurt others in ways that you might not even be able to imagine. One way to fight sin is to not let yourself slide to the fringes of Christian community. Like a wolf who prowls around the fold of sheep, he's searching around the edges of the fold, looking for a sheep that strays to the edge and isn't protected, and that's the one he's going to attack. Satan likes to pick off Christians who have strayed from the covenant community. Stick close, live transparently, and God will work through the community to protect us. Verse 7 is so hard to read. But God is completely just and right in his decision. Now all of verse, verses 1 through 7, they actually stand in contrast to verse 8. And that brings us to point 3, which is God offers grace to sinners. God offers grace to sinners. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 2, the sons of God saw what they wanted and they took it with lust and violence in their hearts. Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man and declared judgment. But oh, praise be to God for verse 8. It's also in the eyes of the Lord that Noah found favor. The word favor here can also be translated grace. 
God is extending grace to Noah. Noah found it there in the Lord. Are you feeling the weight of the extreme sin in this passage? More importantly, are you feeling the weight of your own sin and God's right to judge you? You too can find favor and grace in the Lord's eyes. Have you looked to him? Have you searched for him? Where do we look to see the eyes of the Lord? His eyes are fixed on his son, Jesus Christ. He was the only one who was sent by his father from heaven on a rescue mission. And when he began his ministry by the River Jordan, at his baptism, the father declared, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus has always had the favor of the father. And having died on the cross to take on himself the judgment of God for our sins, he now offers the favor and grace of the father to anyone who will come to him. Friends, the father was sorry that he made man. It grieved him to his heart, but he is perfectly pleased with the obedience of his son, Jesus. Perfectly pleased. It gladdens his heart to offer grace to sinners in the son. Flee, flee, flee to Christ. Trust in him, believe in him, give your life to him. Do you remember that illustration from the beginning of the sermon of the ray of light in the tool shed? It's as if Noah is the ray of light that's piercing through the ceiling of the darkened tool shed that we're reading about in Genesis chapter 6. Noah gives us hope here. But if you'll look along the shaft of the light that Noah is, all the way through the Old Testament, past Noah, who eventually is revealed to have sin, past the patriarchs that failed, past the judges that failed, past the priests that failed, past the kings that failed, and past the prophets that failed, you will see the son who succeeded. Bright, shining, radiant, offering grace to anyone who comes to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that though we were lost and while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You sent your son who died for us so that we might know life and know you forever and ever. In your son's name we pray, amen.